So I thank you very much for inviting me. Um, it's quite an honor to be here. And um, I will, I, I am in fact the director mm -hmm. of the personalized medicine staff, which is almost three years old now in the Office of In Vitro Diagnostics. And it's really the only um, staff at FDA that's full-time full committed to personalized medicine. So um, if it's happening at FDA, I generally know about it in, in that area. So I'm going to describe some of the things that we do and the sort of areas that we're delving into and some of the problems that we face um, in working out this whole paradigm of personalized medicine, which as I'm sure you're aware, everybody has their own definition of, of what it is, but um, I'm going to ignore the definition and just talk about it and hope that it fulfills whatever your idea of personalized medicine is. So, um, so how are we addressing personalized medicine? When one of the, one of the perhaps more important things is that we've developed a staff that's, that's committed to it in, in our office. Um, and we are, within my little group of four, addressing a bunch of issues, including um, how FDA will deal with companion diagnostics, that uh, you're probably familiar with that concept of, a, of an IVD test that's required in order for a drug to be safe and effective. And we published a, a draft guidance on that. Um, so we're looking at the policy and practice around our regulatory efforts for companion diagnostics. And those are directed both internally and externally because, as you might imagine, this whole idea of personalized medicine and having a test and a drug that rely on each other is new to us as well as in the same way as it's new to everyone else. And so we have to uh, think about how we want to act and what we expect from sponsors. My group, as well as worrying about things that are commonly understood as personalized medicine also deals with a lot of novel technologies and what kinds of regulatory approaches we might take in addressing these as medical devices. Um, one of the reasons we do this is because my group is not um, focused on a particular type of use, not microbiology, not immunology, not chemistry, and so on. We look at everything. And so we've taken on a um, project to try to figure out kind of what we need to do in order to, to bring next-gen sequencing into the regulatory fold and to be able to provide assurances to the public health that when this sequencing is used, it can be relied on to have particular performance characteristics. And uh, this is uh, probably even harder than it seems um, because there are so many moving parts right now and so many different ways you can use the technology as well as tremendous enthusiasm for trying to get it in the clinic. Uh, we've been working quite a lot on array-based copy number variation, especially in the area of diagnosis of developmental delay and mental retardation and, and other types of issues in children. There are probably five systems on the market now that are commonly used in clinical laboratories, and we haven't reviewed any of them. And we think that's probably not a good idea, especially as uh, people are starting to use this for prenatal uh, screening, and people might make very serious reproductive choices based on them. So we're working with these companies to come up with a paradigm of establishing performance. And it's really different. We've never seen a system before where you look blindly at everything in the genome and then try to decide what's important. So uh, it, it has a lot of scientific and policy 
um, questions around it. We've also been working primarily with NCI on uh, multiplex proteomic platforms in which uh, people would like to discover new protein biomarkers um, and apply them in clinical use. Oops, that went away. Um, and there's been a serious lack of knowledge of how you would actually bridge from the research and discovery part of proteomics into the actual clinical use. So we've been working with that group to uh, explain our regulatory processes, and we've published a couple papers a few years ago where we did uh, mock submissions with them and worked through those submissions to kind of show them the questions we would ask and, and so on. Uh, we're also um, very deep into other types of policy issues, including the potential oversight of laboratory-developed tests that you might have heard about. If you don't know what a laboratory-developed test is, it's a category of in vitro diagnostic tests in which a single laboratory will develop and validate a test and then be the only laboratory to offer it. And as a uh, historical art artifact, FDA has always exercised enforcement discretion. That means although the, the regulations apply to you, we're not going to do anything if you don't um, comply with them. We've rethought that um, starting probably 15 years ago as technology started to change and it was possible to do much more spectacular things with PCR, with arrays, now with next-gen sequencing and so on. And uh, we now believe that a lot of laboratory testing actually does need oversight. We're also working in the area of use of research use only um, products in clinical diagnosis, uh, which has become a big problem as companies seek to avoid coming to FDA and so they want to they label everything for research use only and then sell it for clinical diagnostic use. And we're aware that, that um, this causes various problems. Um, and are trying to work that out. And then we're working on a lot of other policy issues. This is a big policy year. We're renewing our device, medical device user fees, which is, happens every five years. And this is um, a negotiation between FDA and industry of what we're going to do and how much industry is going to pay for it. And what happens is that we come to an agreement, and then Congress has to pass a bill that actually legislates this into law, that this is the user fee. and these. And this year, um, people have decided that they will try to attach as many rider bills onto that as possible. So <laughs> all over the map on what they want. And so we've been spending a great deal of time um, with different legislative offices, explaining to them what impact their bill would have on FDA, um, positive or negative, and how they may have interpreted properly or improperly what we already do. And then we're dealing with a lot of scientific questions around, um, I was just talking to Jeff earlier, development of statistical approaches towards analyzing multivariate index assays and doing all kinds of, of um, other analytical approaches that would be new and would hopefully speed the, um, the evaluation process as well as make it better to actually pick out where things might go wrong or um, to try and tailor the process so that we can apply it more broadly. Can I ask how much, um, the, of, of, um, how much do you consider software? Or do you consider software in your purview? So software, when used to deliver clinical results, is a medical device. Um, 
In general, our oversight of software is a fairly light touch. We don't look at code. We look at verification and validation activities. And then we generally will look at how it actually works in real life. When you apply it, do you get the right answer, and so on. So that's not in personalized medicine directly, but has been handled in uh, the different divisions for years and years now. So, so the, just, I don't want to uh, digress too much, but in the uh, next-gen sequencing, for example, the mm -hmm. analytics would mm -hmm. not be part of what you would be looking at. You would just be looking at performance of the assay. Well, no, we're in next-gen sequencing, it's actually a big question that it seems to break into three pieces, the pre-analytical part, from which you can buy library preps and so on from a bunch of different companies, plug any one of them into a, an, an analytical system, a sequencer, that could be one of several different ones from different manufacturers. And then there's about a zillion different IT packages that you can apply to the end to analyze your sequence. So we're trying to figure out how you can, whether you have to establish that there's only one of each of them can be used together or whether there are standards or specifications that can tell you which ones ought to be used with each other. Um, the analysis we know is very tricky um, and that different people's approaches yield very different results. So we, we do worry about that a lot. And I can tell you in the vein of next-gen sequencing, we've been working very intensively with the National Institute of Standards and Technology as well as others to begin um, developing reference materials for next-gen sequencing, including one or two human whole genomes as well as uh, four to six microbial genomes that will be um, as well characterized as we can make them and available from NIST as uniform material so that we know that one vial is the same as the next vial so that people can be comparing apples to apples when they're, when they're doing this work. And we hope to have the first one of those done in about two years, I think. It's going to take a lot of analysis and a lot of testing to actually be able to, for NIST, to put it out as a material. So our overall view of personalized medicine, maybe I should have started with this slide, is um, comes from the top. Uh, Dr. Hamburg is our commissioner, and she's really committed to personalized medicine. She and Francis Collins published a paper, I guess, a year or two ago about their commitment to this. And um, she's really supportive and, in, in fact, hired Steven Spielberg uh, probably six to eight months ago to come on to uh, be, I think he's the associate director for medical devices and tobacco. or It's, it's some weird combination, but um, he, he looks at the, the, not medical devices, medical products. He, he looks at the, the medical product centers, the human medical product centers in, in FDA, and that's the Center for Drugs, the Center for Biologics, and the Center for Devices, as well as tobacco. And he kind of has the high-level management of those. He has a very intense personal interest in personalized medicine. He's a pediatrician and has worked in this area a lot. Um, and he has been organizing through the Office of the Commissioner a coordination of the personalized medicine activities in the different product centers. Although I have to say, it's still at a very early formative stage, and um, we're primarily telling him how it works now. And um, he, they're, they're sort of trying to inventory what's going on and, uh, and get an organized approach to this. And then um, I 
keep forgetting to fix this. My center is called CDRH, not CDRD. Can't believe that's the one I misspelled. Um, the Centers for Devices, Drugs, and, and Biologics are all now working together in a much more facile way to identify issues in personalized medicine, as well as novel technologies, and to try to create solutions. Because we know this is coming. We can't stop it. We need to deal with it and make it work and make it valuable. So we've been working on our internal practices, how we talk to each other, which is novel. Um, the centers in the past never talked to each other. It was sort of siloed. And if you were in one center, you just dealt with that center. And then, of course, we've been working a lot on external guidance and uh, information uh, dissemination. So my center, CDRH, um, as I mentioned before, has the only dedicated personalized medicine staff, and, and that's mine. And we have four staff, including me, um, which seems pretty small and, and actually is pretty small, but it's extremely hard for us to recruit people who actually understand all of the issues within FDA, all of the, the little closets and corners and everything that you have to consider when you're making decisions. So, so we're bringing people on very slowly in order to have the appropriate staff. Then we have about 10 review staff that are spread throughout the review divisions. It's not the same person all the time. We use uh, the most experienced reviewers in personalized medicine, and they change according to the product ex expertise that's needed. And then our chief medical officer, you, you might know Bob Becker, um, also participates a great deal in, in our personalized medicine efforts. So um, we are a small staff, but we think we're getting a lot done and really starting to lay down some tracks that, that will um, make this a lot easier in the future. So our current scope is in vitro diagnostics. Um, the Center for Devices regulates a lot of other kinds of devices, therapeutic devices and other diagnostics. It seems right now that the personalized medicine area is mainly focused on IVDs. And much of what we're doing, I, we hope, will be transferable to other types of devices when, when needed. But it seemed logical to start with IVDs. So um, this is a big priority for CDRH. Jeff Sharon strongly supports it. and. Um, gives me money when, when, I, when I show him that it's necessary. Um, but we're aware that it requires a very careful approach um, in the context of the current laws and regulations. Um, we want to do things right. We want to um, do it as quickly as possible without sort of jumping the gun and making rules or policies that will later turn out to not work very well for us. So if it appears that we're not working fast enough to satisfy everyone, it's because we're actually trying to do it in a, in a measured way that will stand the test of time. So some of our current activities are the draft companion diagnostic guidance that many of you may have seen that talks about our policy for requirement of approval of a test when it's necessary for safe and effective use of the drug. We published that in July of last year, and we're planning on finalizing it. It's actually probably going to be the third quarter of this year now, because it's really hard to get all the people together who are supposed to be working on it. But it should be finalized this year and should look a lot like the draft. There are some changes from the comments that um, we analyze, but, but not a lot. Um, I'm working on preparing a guidance that describes the um, issues in co-development. And co-development is the process of actually developing a drug and a diagnostic at the same time so that they come out at the end both ready to work together. There are a load of interesting issues. Every new company that comes in talking about it has a different model, has, has different 
questions, has different problems. Um, so because of that, we're very sure that there's not one path in co-development, that there are many, and very dependent on the way the drug's being developed and so on. So the guidance is not going to be a how-to. This is how you co-develop a product. It's going to talk about the issues you need to consider when you're doing it. Um, and industry will have to figure out how those issues apply to them. We're not really sure how to do it in any, any other way. We're also participating in development of a lot of other guidances that will be of interest. Um, there's a trial enrichment guidance that's been published as a draft. Uh, Bob Temple was the lead on that, that we gave a lot of input to. And there are a bunch of others floating around that, that we're providing into, uh, input on. And perhaps even more importantly, we're doing a lot of internal policy building. That is how we're going to work together in FDA to make sure that we're addressing all the problems that we're doing in a timely and consistent manner and so on. So we have to figure out the center's different roles in decision making. If, if um, for example, if, if, if CDRH says they can't approve a companion diagnostic, what, that's, that's our job, but it's the Center for Drugs job to decide whether the drug can then be approved or not. Um, and we don't really have say in that that's their decision. So we have to sort of draw the lines and assign, um, assign responsibility. We're working really hard on cross-center communications. We've been horrible at this in the past. We're getting a lot better. We're still not perfect. Um, the, the, the cultures between the different centers is really, really different. Um, and they also, of course, have different regulations and laws and so on that, that they operate off of. We're working also very hard on timing. We have different regulatory um, time requirements, how long we're allowed to review, um, when we have to come to a decision, depending on whether it's a drug, a biologic, or a device. So we're having to try and weave these all together so they come out you know, of the oven sort of all cooked. And of course, the consistency and quality of reviews. This is a, this is a new area of science for us, a new area of review. And we have, uh, we're all learning. So we want to make sure that we're providing consistent advice, that we're providing um, consistent feedback, and that we're providing high-quality reviews across the board. Is, yeah. You, is that co-development guidance addressing the sort of issues that uh, Genentech brought up about, um, you know, the approval status of diagnostics that were uh, developed um, with a drug? Um, no. <laughs> That's actually the, the Genentech letter um, requested that FDA require approval of any tests that would impinge on the use of an approved drug because they, as a drug manufacturer, don't want to be responsible for what doctors do with tests that they didn't have anything to do with developing, essentially. That's a policy issue related to laboratory-developed tests um, and probably won't be resolved until we further resolve the, the LDT policy issue. Um, I talked about our emerging technologies approach, the next-gen sequencing. We had a public meeting last <coughs> summer that was widely attended, and uh, we talked about a lot of issues. And what came out of it was that everybody's really interested in this, but nobody really knows the answers. So what, what questions should we ask? Well, nobody was really sure. We think we're moving a little bit closer to this and have kind of refined our approach to separate things into targeted sequencing perhaps whole exome sequencing and whole genome sequencing. They all have different issues about them in determining their performance, um, how they're bioinformatically handled, and so on. Um, and as I mentioned, we're working really hard with NIST on developing standards that are, that are badly needed um, because the field is all working sort of in 
different directions now, and we would really like everybody to be uh, using comparable materials. Again, the array-based testing, not only CNV, but also um, RNA expression and other types of arrays are um, in our ballpark and proteomics. And we're working some in the innovation pathway that you might have heard about announced from CDRH, where we're trying to do a program where people can bring really innovative products to FDA and have kind of uh, extra special treatment and perhaps accelerated um, path to market. I was talking to Jeff before before we, I started my talk, and I said, you know, I think this is interesting, but this is the way that my office, the Office of In Vitro Diagnostics, has always worked. So I'm not sure it's going to make a lot of difference for IVDs, but it is a big difference for the other office, the Office of Device Evaluation, that looks at other kinds of devices. So um, I'm not sure what's going to happen on that. I know the device has been selected, so we'll, we'll see how that all works out. So you might be interested here at Duke to know in the companion diagnostic arena what, what's actually happening here in, in the real world, not just in policy and, and so on. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the two uh, fairly widely publicized approvals that happened last year after we published the, the guidance, although clearly the guidance had nothing to do with <laughs> the, our, our ability to approve. They were very close in time. Um, so one of the drugs that we approved with a companion diagnostic was vimurafenib, um, also called Zelbaraf. And we were able to work together with CEDAR to actually beat the um, PADUFA date, which is the, the date the decision has to be made for a drug, and the MADUFMIT date, which is the date the decision has to be made for a device, by significant amounts, um, which is pretty good because it's a novel product um, and a process that we've not used very much before, this companion diagnostic. Um, this drug was approved on marker-positive trials. That is, they only enrolled people who had the marker of interest, and they didn't look at people who didn't which is um, also somewhat of a departure, but is becoming uh, more common as we understand what marker-positive trials can yield. Uh, we worked really well together, and we, I think we worked well with sponsors. I think sponsors have said good things about us, at least in public. Um, and <laughs> we learned how to work together a lot better internally and who needed to talk to who and how often we had to talk to each other. But it's been really facilitated by the fact we're in a new facility now that we're on the same campus with the folks in drugs. So now we can see each other, we can walk into each other's offices and so on, and, and that makes a huge difference. Um, some of the issues that we ran into were there were differing review timelines. CEDAR wanted to approve the drug by X date, and we weren't sure we could get the diagnostic in shape by then, so we had to negotiate that. Um, in terms of marketing ability, the drug was already available to be used um, prior to the test being available for shipment. So, and, and once a test is shipped, it has to go to a CLIA lab, and it takes some weeks to actually get the verification up before you can actually offer the test. So we had to come up with a new paradigm for how that test could be used prior to it being in full commercial distribution. So we managed that and may write it, something about it in the co-development guidance. And then we ran into some unexpected issues in the diagnostic. Um, and that was the performance and whether people with certain other mutations actually should or should not have been analyzed, but, but we ended up resolving that. And the outcome was, I think, a successful co-development. Um, I know some people have had questions about 
the test after approval, but I think the drug works really well. And uh, I think we learned a lot in that process and um, we'll be able to use it moving forward. The other drug, yeah. Just uh, about that test, a quick mm -hmm. question. I'm sorry to interrupt. As you know, many laboratories were offering LVTs for BRAF prior mm -hmm. to uh, this test for use for other reasons, right. maybe colorectal cancer. Right. Uh, is it your impression or knowledge that those laboratories have discontinued their LVTs? No, I'm sure they haven't. Um, and that's been, that's been an issue. The, the, the Roche actually developed the approved diagnostic, and they are, of course, not at all happy that people aren't required to use their diagnostic. And we are concerned internally at FDA that the different labs tests may actually be selecting different populations. We know that some of the claims made for some of the tests have been, um, at best, a, a fantasy. For example, um, some labs have claimed that their test works better than the, the Roche test, but we know they don't, didn't have access to the clinical samples, so there's no way that they could know that it works better. Um, the, the, the proof is in the outcome of the patient who's treated on the drug. So yeah, there's still a lot of angst swirling around, but no, I don't think any of those labs have stopped offering those tests. So we have. Yeah. But we try and follow the rules. Yeah. Uh, but it's, uh, so, it's interesting because on the on the package insert for the drug, it specifically mentions this test as a requirement and well, FDA approved diagnostic. Right. So it doesn't mention this particular test, but it does tell you to use an FDA approved diagnostic. And right now, this is the only one. Mm -hmm. So um, so that that would imply that you should use this test. But doc, we don't regulate the practice of medicine. Doctors can choose whatever test they want. They can choose a test that's not even BRAF um, mm -hmm. if that's their desire. So at the moment, we don't feel that uh, we, can, we can force people to use the Roche test, although we'd certainly like them to because we understand how it performs in relation to the drug. But there is a government organization that can't, CMS. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a whole other um, kettle of fish. Well, and CMS is using the package insert and information about the FDA-approved diagnostic to say, you cannot give this drug to a person unless they have this test. At least that's what we've been talking really? about. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting to hear. Um, and Palmetto is interesting in, in, yes, on, on, in their own right. Um. So it, you know, the, the, these have huge real-time implications for how a laboratory can operate. Right. And even though it's not you have to use this product, right. you, know, you risk filling non-compliance yeah. Um, our idea in developing the policy saying you have to have an approved test is we want to know that there's at least one test out there that if you want to know that there's a test that actually has been related to the drug and has known performance characteristics that you can get it. So whether labs use it or not, kind of not up to us um, at the moment. So, um, but I agree with you in principle. So the other approval was um, another pretty spectacular one, crizotinib or Zalcori, which um, is for non-small cell lung cancer, um, was again approved um, on a fast track prior to the drug and, and medical device uh, user dates. And um, again, used marker positive trials. And the interesting part here is that um, the population was selected based on the ALK EML for, or just, I guess, an ALK, break-apart probe, so it could be actually translocated to, to any 
um, other other gene. It's a very small population. Some people say 3%, some people say 7% of patients with non-small cell lung cancer. So um, there were special considerations that went into this. They had to screen a lot of people in order to get enough people to get into the trial. And uh, we worry about the false result rate of the test actually overwhelming the prevalence of, of the the disease marker in that case. So we had to look very carefully. Again, we worked really well together and with sponsors on this. Um, we got things done. Our review timelines were very compressed on this. It was clear that this drug had an outstanding effect, uh, accelerated approval. Cedar wanted to get this out quickly, and so we really had to scramble to get the diagnostic in shape. Um, there were some issues in the testing and clinical trial. Not all the labs followed the protocol. So some data had to be thrown out because we couldn't compare data across labs. Um, and as a result, we are now strongly advising pharma companies to oversee that the labs are doing exactly what they're supposed to do according to the protocol, because a whole study can actually be ruined by a lab not following protocol. Um, this drug will have post-market studies to look so at the... To, to that point, yeah. so if this was a marker-positive study and mm -hmm. the labs The subjects that got enrolled into the study based on the non-compliant testing, essentially nobody was sure if they were the right ones because the protocol wasn't, wasn't followed. Um, and there seemed to be some deviation in the results from what was expected. And so a whole clinical study was essentially invalidated. So the clinical data was part yeah. of the diagnostic data. Right, because the people who were enrolled were, you know, did that, did that response rate actually, yeah. You could, but you introduce bias when you do that. So um, we were able to work around it, and we had a, a timeline to, uh, to deal with that didn't really allow that. Um, this drug will have post-market studies because there is a question of whether the marker negatives can respond or not. Um, a few marker negatives were enrolled by accident. Um, and it appeared that there might have been an effect, and so CEDAR required a, a post-market study. Um, I don't know when that's going to be done. So we will find out someday whether the marker positive was the, right, was the right thing or not. But we do know that it works very well in marker positives. So the outcome, we think, was a su successful co-development with some lessons learned. Um, so what we did learn is that when drug approval is accelerated, it's, it's not um, completely uncommon, especially in oncology, to approve a drug out of a phase two trial if it shows a really good effect um, and there's an unmet need and all this kind of stuff. And um, so a lot of people have said, well, what's going to happen with the diagnostic? It turned out in this case, nothing. It, everything worked as expected. It, the, the good thing was that the companies had the diagnostic in place fairly early, and so that wasn't an issue. Um, our communications between each other were highly effective, even without SOPs and, and uh, lots of hand-holding. Um, we co-attended as many meetings as we could so that everybody was hearing the same thing. We made sure that each center was aware of the questions that the other were sending to the sponsor. Um, we were able to coordinate the approvals and the, the press for this, which is a surprisingly difficult. You, I don't know if you've ever had to do this before, but get it all out. Um, 
in a in a really well coordinated manner, and we we want to generalize the model to make this sort of a a standard model where we can work through these things um, efficiently. We learned that drug and device sponsors really need to define their expectations for each other, and then follow up and make sure that 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 each is doing what the other expected. Um, I don't know how well you know our regulatory process, but we have the, the highest level of scrutiny is at the pre-market approval or PMA process. Most companion diagnostics will require a PMA. And we think that the modular approach to this, that's where you submit different segments of the PMA over time rather than submitting it all in one giant file, is better for us. It allows us to get a lot of the, the legwork out of the way before the, the clinical part actually comes in where we really have to do the analysis. So we've been asking people to consider modular PMAs. And I think overall, we, we realize co-development works. It can work. It can go spectacularly wrong. But um, there are pathways that work. <clears throat> so I mentioned earlier that Intercenter policies and communications have been pretty abysmal in the past, partly because we didn't have to deal with each other. Um, now we do. We have to deal with different sets of laws that were written at different times in history for different reasons. We've got different regulations based on those laws, very different cultures, very different needs, different user fee agreements that have different timelines. There's just differences everywhere. Um, so we're having to try to, to, to sew all of this together, but I think we have a lot of positive developments. Now, as I mentioned, we're working actually in proximity to each other, so we can see each other and we can run into each other in the hall and so on. And that makes a big difference. You're actually talking to someone you know rather than a disembodied voice on the phone. Um, we're going to each other's meetings. We just have to walk some distance down the hall. And so we can see, each center can see how the other one works. We have very different styles. Um, and you get to see the big picture, warts and all. Um, Cedar is very formal. You have to do everything exactly according to their, to their plan. CDRH is pretty much the Wild West. We take anybody, we chat, talk, make jokes, whatever. And the, the Cedar folks were initially horrified. You know, this meeting is out of control. Oh my God. And uh, you know, and we said we do this all the time. This is the way we work. So, so uh, now now they're much more relaxed. We're identifying issues together. Um, and talking to each other about how to resolve them. And we're creating draft policies as we go, as we, we come up with something that we're pretty sure is going to be good. Um, we're doing internal interactions on a much broader scope now about many more things. And we have one internal SOP nearly finalized. Although, as I mentioned before, we've managed to scrabble through all of this without SOPs. Um, some centers like to have it written down, and other centers not so much. So um, we're close on that one. We are creating these agreed two ways of working together. We're recognizing each the other center's role in the process. The Center for Drugs doesn't approve devices. The Center for Devices doesn't approve drugs. There was some doubt in the beginning about who got to say what. But we've, we've settled that and including the limitations on that. Um, we're trying to create streamlined communication methods. Um, but again, that's one of those things that's a lot harder than it might seem. Each center has their own tracking, archiving, uh, communication system in the IT world, and they don't talk to each other. And some of them are probably older than many of the people in this room, and some of them are, are quite new. So we're trying to get them to work together, but it's not that easy. Makes it hard for us to see what the other side is looking at if we, if we can't tie them together. Um, but, but we're working hard on that. 
And um, as many of you may have been exposed to, we have uh, come to recognize the status of tests in investigational new drug applications. In the past, um, tests weren't used as companion diagnostics in clinical trials, and so nobody really thought about that, and now they're used fairly commonly. And um, when an IND comes into the Center for Drugs and there's a te new test in there saying we're going to select patients based on this test, they weren't aware that they needed to talk to CDRH. Now they are. Um, we're creating some new processes, some new letters and so on that, that try to solve problems like even if your study is IND exempt, you may still need an IDE, so you're not off the hook for everything. That kind of, of process that, that we've recognized over the past couple of years. So my <clears throat> prognosis and predictions, that's kind of a statistical joke. Um, <laughs> um, our progress has been really rapid, but it still has a lot of unpredictable moments because I think there's still so many ways to get to the end of the story that we haven't even witnessed yet that, you know, we're probably going to be seeing new stuff for the next 10 years. Um, everyone seems to be playing well together. Uh, we haven't had any major blow-ups, and each center has learned a lot from, from the other. Um, there is a, I think, fairly entrenched sense that this co-development system will work and that we can manage it uh, fairly easily, but that we're really learning new lessons from every submission that comes in. So we're not ready to generalize yet. Um, we got a lot of greater inter internal uniformity, which is important. Our guidance, as people have pointed out to us endlessly, is lagging submissions because, as I mentioned, we don't want to make guidance and make recommendations that later turn out to be useless, wrong, time-wasting, money-wasting. So we are actually trying to gather a mass of information before we start pumping out guidance because, in many cases, we don't know a whole lot more about this than you do. Um, so the system's operational needs refinement. Um, sponsors, especially the pharma side, it really seem to be getting it much more than, than they had in the past. And, and there's a good sense that, that this will work. There will be bumps, I know that, but it, it, it can work. So some other issues I wanted to cover that I thought might be interesting for, for this audience. Um, if you're working in companion diagnostics, um, Nobody, when you, come with, when you come in with a device, you can either be exempt. That means you really don't have to provide a pre-market submission. You can be moderate risk and provide a 510K that shows that you're substantially equivalent to some other device that's already on the market. Or if, if you're really unlucky, you have to do a PMA. And that's where you have to give us a load of information. And, and it takes us a while to get through it and so on. And nobody wants to have to bring in a PMA. Well. Unfortunately, companion diagnostics, due to their risk for giving the patient the wrong treatment, um, uh, are generally companion diagnostics are usually going to be PMAs, just just the way it is from you know tradition, outlook, risk, and so on. We really worry about the the risk of misclassifying, especially in cancer patients, and them getting the wrong therapy, not getting the therapy that might have helped them, and you know they're then they having you know, dying or having other complications that weren't necessary. So in general, if you're in this field, think PMA unless you hear otherwise. Um, there are possibilities for 510Ks, but in general, um, I don't think that's going to be the direction we go. Another area that's been really confusing to people, um, and we're trying to dispel the confusion, is that lab-developed tests that are 
normally offered under enforcement discretion are acceptable as companion diagnostics. If you want to bring in a PMA for a single lab test, that's fine with us. Um, the difference is if you're supporting drug approval, it's a, if it's a companion diagnostic, you no longer get enforcement discretion. We do review, um, we do expect compliance with all of our, all of our regulations as if it were a distributed product. Um, and that includes the quality system and all the other requirements under our regulations. Um, and the LDT model, it doesn't change the regulatory pathway in any way. You simply do everything as if it's a manufacturer with one customer. So um, I'm not sure that we've actually approved any as companion diagnostic, but we have cleared some LDTs um, as medical devices, including Mammaprint and the XDX cardiac rejection test and um, maybe a couple others. So, yes. Well, I can't actually say who we've gotten submissions from and who we haven't, um, but I can say that um, in general, laboratories, uh, clinical laboratories that have been operating in this area for a long time are not anxious to to um, meet us. So. It seems like the, the letter of the law that's being laid down is very different from what's being practiced. Like with regard to the BRAP, for example. A companion diagnostic that, you know, probably 100 labs across the country are doing their LDTs right. that are coming to the FDA. Right. Well, if you want my personal opinion, um, <laughs> I think that any test that makes a companion diagnostic claim ought to be reviewed by FDA because it's important to the safety and effectiveness of the drug. Unfortunately, our past policy can't, we can't change that just because we want to. We actually have to go through a lot of political um, maneuvering and so on. And that area is sort of off limits for us right now. We just can't come out and say that. Um, so. We, we believe that we can scientifically support that there has to be one test, but we don't have the policy in place to say that any other test that makes the same claim has to come in. But I do agree with you. I, th I, think, it's, um, I think it's a bit scary, actually. And a lot of patients don't know what they're getting. And a lot of physicians, uh, I'm not sure that physicians know when they order a test whether they're getting the approved test or someone else's version of it. So that's probably also a, a, an issue. We would love to fix that, but there are lots of obstacles to there are lots of obstacles to fixing it that that are out of our control. You know, it would be great if there was an FDA-approved assay for every companion diagnostic test we were asked to run, like a KRAS for Cefaxima. Yeah. Well, but there's not. Yeah. So now we have this this scenario where we have to put all this effort into LDT for KRAS. Right. Check sensitivity, specificity, and precision on every mutation that we report, and in KRAS. It's a different game. Oh, I know. I know. Um, KRAS, when a drug gets a post-approval requirement attached to it, the drugs, Herbitux was already on the market. Panituvimab was already on the market when they put KRAS in. We couldn't take the drugs off the market until we got a test. That wouldn't have been beneficial to patients. And we essentially had to figure out how to get a test in, and that's not as easy. I mean, you can't 
you can't hold a gun to someone's head and say, bring in your test. Um, <laughs> and then when they do, it may work or it may not work. And, and so those particular issues where the test gets applied after the drug's been approved have been a big problem for us. And we're trying to move things so that the test need is actually identified before the drug approval as much as possible. Well, I don't see a future where FDA is reviewing all LDTs, no, because um, we would have to grow probably 10 times in size. But um, I see a calibrated approach based on risk where the highest risk stuff FDA does look at and the other stuff maybe somebody else looks at. Maybe it's, you know, exempt that, I mean, we, we have actually developed an entire regulatory model. You just haven't seen it yet because we haven't been able to publish the guidance. So. so I have a question. So mm -hmm. when you have the development of a diagnostic that's subject to A12, you know, just part of a clinical trial, but if you're developing a diagnostic independent of clinical samples, so you know you're maybe you mentioned about marker positive, so mm -hmm. there's a protein that or a gene that you want to have, you, you develop that independently. And so when is it that that test becomes subject to A12? So all investigational tests are subject to A12. Most IVDs that are not companion diagnostics are exempt from most provisions of 812 because you're not returning the results for patient care, you're not doing invasive sampling, you're, you're basically often using leftover samples or samples procured from a bank, and so it doesn't present any risk to any patient. So those are mostly exempt from 812, most of 812. It's when you start to return results, um, when you start using the test results without confirming it with another approved procedure and so on, where we see, woo, patient safety, patient safety, and then that's even calibrated on whether the risk is considered to be significant or, or not. Does that answer your question? Okay. All this regulatory speak. Um, some of the common pitfalls that we've seen, again, if you're interested in this area, um, some companies have made a very late decision to incorporate a companion diagnostic into their drug development process, generally based on a fear that the drug is going to fail, um, that we need to screen out the safety signal, we need to increase the efficacy by selecting down the most likely uh, responsive population. Sometimes it's unavoidable, sometimes you don't know which marker to choose until until some number of patients have been treated and so on. Um, but the problem is we don't have any way to uh, really account for that if you don't get it done in time. We have some ways to help. We can um, maneuver a little bit and be creative a little bit, but generally we can't fix a fundamental timing issue. So what this generally means is if you bring the companion diagnostic in late, yet the drug actually may be held up. Now, in the companion diagnostic guidance, we did point out that if there's a drug that it's, has such overwhelming benefit that you can decide it's okay to approve it without the companion diagnostic and bring the companion diagnostic along later, we can do that if we decide the benefit risk is there. So it's not going to hold up really important drugs. Um, but we don't want people sort of taking the lazy way out and deciding that, you know, well, we came in late and go ahead and approve our drug anyway. It's, it's unlikely we're going to do that for most drugs. 
Um, we've seen a lot of problems with tests that are used to enroll patients in trials being non-comparable. Um, we mentioned this where if, a, if, a, if we don't know the performance of all the tests, we're not sure who was enrolled in the trial, and then we're not sure what to say about the drug. Who, who does it work in? Um, so this has got to be managed from the beginning really carefully, and specific testing protocols have to be followed. And we do actually go out and check this with a group called BIMO, Bioresearch Monitoring, and they go in and they look and see if you followed the protocol. And if you didn't, then there are various actions that we take. Um, we've also seen a lot of trouble with limiting or unavailable samples, when, especially when um, people want to do bridging studies. They use one assay in the clinical trial, but they want to get a different assay approved. You have to do a bridging study to show that they have comparable performance. And what we really need is those samples from the clinical trial, because that's where we're going to tell that the performance is comparable. And in fact, we're going to do an efficacy analysis that says, if you use the new test, would you get the same results for the drug? Would you actually come up with the same effectiveness and so on? So it's really important to save samples. Um, and even get extra if possible because things do go wrong. People drop tubes and you know, FedEx trucks get stranded in the desert and, and things like that. Um, another thing that's really important, a lot of people are going towards marker-positive trials, which is often acceptable. We don't know in bridging how to understand the comparable performance of the clinical trial assay and the to-be-approved assay if there aren't any test-negative samples. Just positives doesn't work. You have to have some negatives, too. So if you're actually going on this bridging thing, and even if you're not, it's always good to have some test-negative samples in the freezer somewhere so that you can go back and look at a test and say it has this sensitivity, this specificity, you know, and so on. So a lot of people have, have failed to do that, and it creates big problems. Um, so I would avoid that if possible. Of course, pre-submission advice for anybody who wants to deal with FDA, um, early interactions are important. This has been a big lesson for especially the Center for Drugs, who has a very regimented way of looking at things. Um, we've been much more informal in CDRH using our pre-IDE process, which allows us to talk to people informally about almost anything. Um, so we like to use that process for people to come in and tell us what they're doing, what their plans are, and ask for advice. Um, if it's co-development, we like to, to have both the diagnostic and the therapeutic partner at the table because it's really like playing a game of telephone. When only one of them is there, they hear something, and it gets slightly warped in transition um, to them telling the other side. So it's better if they both hear it at once and are both able to ask questions. And, and as, as I said, we're informal. You can ask all the questions you want. We will certainly ask all the questions we want. Um, for the other centers, it would be through a pre-IND that you'd, you'd maybe want to start this. Um, again, it's good to have both sides at the table so that everybody can ask questions, everybody hears the same thing, and you don't get um, misinterpretations. You may have to ask for CDRH attendance with some of the groups who aren't quite as up to speed. It's very important, even though it seems a formal atmosphere, to ask all the questions that need to be answered and to lay out what you think your possible problems might be so that those get addressed as early as possible and don't come up as irresolvable issues later on in the process. So my final words are that I think we're all in the process of learning by doing now. We're seeing all kinds of interesting stuff happen. Um, we certainly know we haven't encountered every possible situation, and I'm not sure if we'll ever have encountered every possible situation. As ever, we do our best 
but we can't answer questions that you didn't ask. Um, in fact, sometimes when we try to do that, we get admonished, like they didn't ask that question. Don't don't tell them something they you know don't want to know. Um, We've seen the process can be more time-consuming, especially over the very early parts than, than standard IBD submissions, because you actually need to work out more things. Um, and that we can adjust a lot of our existing mechanisms to accommodate personalized medicine issues. And we'll be trying to sort of expand that so that we have a clear pathway to deal with all the issues we're aware of. So I think um, I feel very positive about it. I hope others do, too. Um, we've had mostly successes with, with some small failures and some communication issues, but um, we're doing pretty well. So I'll end there and take any questions you might have. So, so if there's a, uh, a clinical trial that is using a test in some way to either drive therapy or those will all now, that test assessment will go to your group or, because there's the other, all the other people under um, Alberto's thing that has. Well, actually, the the investigational information goes to the review division that handles the particular intended use. My group doesn't review anything. We just think. Um, <laughs> so we send that on to the expert reviewers. They decide what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. I actually look at the responses as they go back through. Um, but yeah, it goes into the review divisions. Typically, when we think about a test, we think about a test for something. Mm -hmm. And uh, with these next-gen sequencing approaches, uh, we say test for everything. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was wondering your thoughts on how these tests should be appropriately validated or, or their performance looked at, because um, there are clinical laboratories offering it now mm -hmm. to our physicians, mm -hmm. uh, where we're being asked to send patient samples to private industries or academic medical centers that mm -hmm. are offering next-gen sequencing. Sure. I don't know if that's a good idea or a bad idea. Um, yeah, honestly, I don't know either, um, because it depends on what they're offering. It depends on how, we, how well they've validated what they're offering, um, how much they understand about how their system works. Um, I've talked to a lot of clinicians that have labs that are offering or want to offer this, and, and they feel that it's very easy to validate these systems, and I, but you don't even know how they work. Um, you don't know what's happening inside that box, and you don't know what that, that analysis is at the end. You're trusting it, but it's not clear to prove. You don't know anything about its performance. You're just hoping that it's going to work the same way every time. So I would say, yes, they can offer new information that's, that's maybe easier to do as a panel or something. Yes, they can in the diagnostic odyssey for certain people where you just don't know what's wrong with them and you do the whole genome and so on. But for regular everyday use, I think it's maybe a little early to well, what we're seeing be is using them. A, a patient with symptoms of charcoal mood tooth, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, rather than sending for that $4,000 assay, they send for the $8,000 whole genome sequence. Right, yeah. You know, and people are just looking at it uh, right. And you know, in our laboratory, we won't say we can detect something unless we've actually detected it before in our right. laboratory. Right. Right. But I, I can guarantee that's not the approaches these laboratories are taking. Yeah, I know. Um, so we're not even sure, and the companies that manufacture these things aren't even really sure exactly how to validate them at the moment. So how labs are doing it, I don't know. Um, 
certainly whole genome sequencing is really, really dependent on, on the analysis that happens after the sequence is read. Um, whether it's an alignment um, to the to the reference sequence, whether you know, there are a lot of issues, and I think it it may be useful in certain situations, but me personally, I would not trust a whole genome sequence to be correct in, on any given day until more is known about how the how the systems perform. So I know that a couple of You know, NextGen is still um, evolving really fast. There is certainly interest in diagnostic clinical use, and there are two systems out there that are clearly designed to be, you know, a bench top, mm -hmm. not a room full of, of stuff. Um, we've talked to all the companies in the space um, on a scientific basis, and again, I can't tell you who, who we've talked to from a regulatory point of view, but there is interest. You know, we are, um, but not intimately. We know, you know, Terry Manolio and, and, and Les Biesecker and all those guys we talk to all the time, but we're not relying on their information at this point. So I'm wondering, you guys are sitting on an enormous amount of data that um, could be um, useful for um, discovery, validation, for lots of things that, that uh, others are spending a lot of money on right. sort of to create redundant data sets Right. So that's been a big question lately. The problem that FDA has with all of this data we have locked away in our you know, secret caverns <laughs> is that it doesn't belong to FDA. It belongs to the sponsors. And so we can't release it without their permission. Most sponsors are not interested um, in giving away the data that they paid to generate and um, submit to the FDA and so on to other people. So we can't do it just because we want to. They have to agree to do it. And um, well, have you engaged them in those discussions? You know, the, I, I think some people have. It's mostly the Center for Drugs that has that. And they, I, I really think they have. And most of the companies have said, yeah, that's a great idea, but we're not doing it. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, could happen. Well, you know, I think it depends on um, the disease and the drug. I think it depends on um, how much you know about the marker going in and how important it is. Um, marker positive only creates device issues, but it doesn't mean it's not valuable as a drug development trial design. Uh, we have we can't predict we we can't come up with predictive value for the test when we only have one side of the equation. Um, so we have to just say, look, this is how the test worked in the clinical trial. Um, so we don't love it, but we recognize the value of it. The adaptive designs, we haven't seen a lot of them, um, I think could be very valuable. And I think FDA is pretty open to a lot of adaptive designs, although not a lot of people have come forward with them, just um, because the scientifically it seems valid and, and there's no reason not to do it. 
So in general, what I would want, my personal philosophy is you must know everything about your biomarker before you start, and you have to have a perfect test. But um, <laughs> in the real world, I think you know we, 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 we accept that there are a lot of situations that call for marker positive only that would call for adaptive design if people actually understood the concept and were able to design a trial that was scientifically valid. And I think, you know, there's actually a lot of interest in seeing those, and but they're not coming forward, you know, in, in large volume at the moment. So. In your oversight of laboratory development tests, I think it's going to be some type of risk-based approach. You're going to classify LDTs and then kind of raise your oversight based on that? Yeah, so we have essentially enforcement discretion now, which means no oversight, except for investigational tests that does not does not apply to the investigational world, only to the pre-market review. Um, important to understand. Um, yeah, risk-based, the same as we are now, high, moderate, low. Um, the idea is that uh, we would classify the tests and then bite off little tiny chunks, um, starting with the highest risk and, and moving down the ladder, because we can't handle a whole lot more volume, especially when they're all PMAs. So um, we'd have to work our way into it over time. And then we'd probably reach a point at either we decided we didn't care anymore or somebody else could do the job. Because we don't even know how many lab-developed tests there are out there. I mean, the New York State says five to 8,000. I think that's a gross underestimate. So. We could probably talk to the CAP about how many lab-developed tests there are. They don't know either. So we do the proficiency testing challenges. I can tell you how many people uh, subscribe to the proficiency testing challenges for all the Right. Now, we've, we've talked to everybody. Nobody really knows. Um, but, you know, we could get bottom line. Yeah. What, what a minimum would be. Yeah. We know that we're doing this sort of testing. Yeah. Well. Uh, but I, I would hope if the FDA says we're going to make you submit a PMA, that there would be an FDA approved option for us to fall back to. Because otherwise, we would just have to shut down testing. Right. Well, that's not the goal, right. <laughs> obviously. Um, but that's so, what we did for BRAC. Right. But we if we could get our policy out there for discussion, I think it would be very helpful. Yeah. Um, that clearly hasn't happened. So I shouldn't say very much more. One last question. Could you comment on Oncotype? Um, and not not uh, what you're doing, but just is that you, from what you, your remarks today? It seems like that's going to be a, um, an exceptional case going forward that there won't be uh, the ability to go out there and really proliferate a test like that without. Well, Oncotype um, DX has a couple. It's not FDA cleared or approved. Um, it is probably the most widely used breast cancer prognostic, and I believe they also make some predictive claims for it that, according to the Genome Web article I read yesterday, um, are not well supported by uh, clinical data at the moment. So um, it's, a, and it's an IVD MIA. That means you're, you're measuring a bunch of analytes, you're weighting them in some special way, and you're coming up with a score, and then you're saying that that score means something. And the doctor who orders it is like, wow, 14. You know? <laughs> and not, not only that, for Oncotype, I'm not trying to knock them. I'm just trying to point out some of the issues, is that the cutoffs are changing over time or getting refined. So today, the cutoff between low risk and intermediate risk might be 18. But two years ago, it was 24. 
So if you got your test two years ago, does that mean you're now intermediate risk and you thought you were low risk before? I mean, there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of unknowns in there and that does bother us to some degree. It also, we're not real crazy about people making claims like predictive claims when there's not clinical data to, to back it up because especially people with cancer are, you know, really, really wanting an answer. And if that answer is sort of not real solid, I think it's in a way not fair. So, um, so in the future, if we were able to regulate LDTs, um, we don't usually think prognostic tests are high risk. So if the test was actually prognostic, that would be the first one on our, on our radar. Actually, the companion diagnostics would be, would be to get the, the LDTs that are making companion diagnostic claims to come in because that's, we consider those to be among the highest risk. I mean, really decisional tests standalone. You know, this test says give the patient the drug. Um, so I think should we ever get there, you know, we're going to have to go through a process saying this is our highest concern, this is next, this is next, and give, you know, fair warning to everyone so that they can either decide to get their act together and come into FDA or decide to phase out the test and go off the market. Thanks again. This well, is thank you. It was a pleasure.